Vatican II and the document on the sacred liturgy reminds us that the earthly liturgy is a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy where we're being ushered into worship with all the saints and angels in the celestial throne room. And today the church holds up for us John the Baptist. And as we've been walking along this series, discussing and diving deeper into the liturgy, I want to see how John the Baptist can help us to understand uh, more the, the liturgy which we celebrate. And actually, I think this is a special vocation of John the Baptist. We go back to the prophecy that his father, Zechariah, uh, spoke over him right after his birth. We, get the, we remember the part, you, my child, would be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. But right before that, he says that you will fulfill, the Lord will fulfill the promise he swore to our father Abraham to set us free to worship him without fear. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, forget that in pertaining to John the Baptist because when, when we see John the Baptist going out into the desert to prepare the way, we should ask ourselves two questions. What's he preparing the way for? And why is he going out into the wilderness to do it? So he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, yes, but the first thing that Jesus says when he comes on the scene is he says, repent. And this is what John the Baptist is saying, repent. So did he, the Lord like, well, I really need one person to go and like say repent before I say repent, or is he doing something different? Is there something more to it? Well, what did the Lord come to do? The Lord came to restore right worship. Actually, this is, this is the mission of the Savior. What's, what's one of the first things he does when he gets on, he comes into Jerusalem? He cleans out the temple. He says, get out of here. No, we're, I'm starting something new. This is going to be torn down and I'm going to show you how to truly worship. He says the same thing to the woman in Samaria. No, it's not about this temple or that temple. It's, I'm going to teach you to worship in spirit and in truth, not in an earthly way, but in a heavenly way. And then of course, at the last supper, he inaugurates the sacrifice, which he completes on Calvary. So Let's keep in mind what the Lord has come to do. And so this is what, the, what John the Baptist is preparing the way for. So why the wilderness? Why the desert? Well, let's, let's remember the last thing that happened out in, not the last thing, but one of the main things in the Old Testament that happened out here in the wilderness, in this particular place in the wilderness, at the Jordan River, the Israelite people walk across the Jordan River, which separates for them. They destroy Jericho. They're destroying the, the nations, and then Joshua says this, decide for yourselves today whom you will serve, the gods of these people whom, whom the Lord is driving out before you, or the God who delivered you from Egypt. Choose now. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people all, of course, say, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord too, hoorah, and then they charge off into the promised land, and immediately start worshiping false gods again. They, they want to worship the way that the nations around them worship. Ah, we, we kind of like that custom, you know, the Asher pole and like, you know, the human sacrifice, that's kind of nice. Oh, the sex cults, those are really cool. Uh, so we continue to worship and the, they continue to worship in the way that the nations around them because they were afraid to worship in the way that the living God had given them to worship. And, and what was that way? Well, let's go back to Moses. Moses has just freed the people from all these plagues from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're on Mount Sinai. 
Moses goes up the mountain. It's covered and wreathed in smoke and fire and earthquakes and lightning. And he receives the Ten Commandments, we know. But more than that, he actually is given a vision of what the heavenly sanctuary is so that he can build a replica of that for his people. So Moses is given what what this temple is to look like, what this tabernacle is to look like with with the gold and the angels and the pomegranates and the silks and the purples and the gold, all the the different colors and things and all these symbolic imagery that if if nothing else is supposed to be evocative of heaven itself. And so this is what Moses is up on the mountain receiving And then he comes down from the mountain to find what? The people worshiping a golden calf. So immediately they go from, they're being called into something heavenly outside of this earth and they immediately degrade themselves to an earthly form of worship. I want to be able to, I want to be able to see it. You know, this is a calf, a golden calf. I know what that means. It means food and drink and wealth. And, and I can touch it and we're going we're gonna to dance because dancing gets the blood moving and we're going to drink because that makes me feel good and we're going to have all sorts of promiscuity because that's what life is all about. And so their worship immediately degrades into a very human, earthly sort of worship because that's what we're, we're continually struggling against. And this is how they'd learned to worship. This is their 400 years in, in Egypt. And they said, well, let's, let's do what they do. Let's do what they do. It's, it's, it's understandable, it's comprehensible, it's easy. And, and there we see the paradigm of, of what God is calling us to and what we continue to fall into. And it, it, didn't, it didn't begin there, it goes, it goes way back. We could jump back to Abraham, of course. Abraham is called out of the Chaldeans. Abraham, in a, in a real sense, is the first follower of God. He's called out of the pagan territory to follow God in a special way. And God, at some point in his, his faith walk, calls him and says, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. We're horrified by this, but Abraham's like, well, that's, that's what we grew up doing, offering human sacrifice. This wasn't, this wasn't novel to him. But in that, the Lord says, and we have that depicted right over there, the Lord says, nope, stop. Actually, I'm, I'm doing something different. No longer are you going to do human sacrifice, but I myself will provide the lamb for sacrifice. And many thousands of years later, God does exactly that. On that exact same mountain, he, he brings the true lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and he's offered right there on that same mountain, which is Calvary. We go back even before that, way, way, way back, Cain and Abel. What was Cain's problem? Well, he offered bad sacrifice, We don't get the whole picture of it, but it must have been that he offered this in a way that was pleasing to him because it wasn't pleasing to God. And of course, his parents uh, started this off. They were put in the garden to tend and cultivate the garden. The the language there, the, the Hebrew words there are the same Hebrew words that are used to describe what the priests are to do in the temple. So, The the sacred author is showing us that actually Adam and Eve are the the priests of the temple to offer pure worship to God. And what do they do? Ooh, that fruit looks tasty. It It was pleasing to the eyes. It looked good. It was desirable. 
It was human. It was something I understood. It was comprehensible. It was earthly. The Lord was calling them to something heavenly. They fall into something earthly. And then it it just continues from there. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's bringing us into true worship, worship in spirit and truth where he continues even now to sit at the right hand of the Father to continually offer the one once and for all sacrifice, the sacrifice that is truly pleasing to him and invites us into that same offering which we get to do in the Holy Mass. The the New Testament is actually full of this same theme. St. Paul talking to the Romans, hey, offer your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice holy and acceptable to the Lord. Do not be conformed to, the, to this age, right? We continue to want, I wanna, I wanna worship the way that they worship. Don't be conformed to them. To the Corinthians, he chastises them because they're going to the Eucharist, bringing all this food and getting, getting full and getting drunk. He says, no, 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 no. This isn't, this isn't that you're, you're drawing back into human earthly means. The book of Hebrews, of course, is all about the heavenly worship. And then finally, we culminate in Uh, the book of Revelation, where St. John, as he's entering into the sacred liturgy, sees this heavenly glimpse of what he's actually doing. And it's full of of symbolic imagery. You you can't describe heaven in earthly earthly ways, so it's all these symbols that are in some ways incomprehensible and in some ways are very revelatory. But as we talked about last week, a, a, a symbol, a veil, it both reveals and hides it shows us something, but it obscures something. It's very, the very nature of it obscuring makes me want to see deeper into it. And so we see uh, gold and harps and angels and elders and beasts and incense and lambs and scrolls and dragons and songs that no one knows. And then all of a sudden, after this culmination of singing and glory, the cherub and the seraphim, Silence. And this is the heavenly worship that the church continues to remind us is for us to enter into. And if we're honest about it, that's still our struggle. I mean, how many of us have said at some point in our life, myself included, ah yeah, mass is just boring. The sermons don't make me feel good. The music doesn't move me. I don't get anything out of it. It's, about, it's all about me, and my, and I, what I want. And we see the, the other, the Protestant denominations kind of creating their own thing and they have rock concerts, literal rock concerts where the, the bass drum is kicking and thumping in your chest and you can feel it and you can sense it and there's a pulse and you're drinking your coffee and I like this and it's, it's real and I know what's going on and it's in a language I understand, it's comprehensible. And why can't we do what they're doing? It's the same thing we've always been saying. And the church continues to hold that there's something in the mystery. There's something in the unknown. There's something in that that's good for me because if I, if I really want to be drawn into heaven, I got to let go of the earth. I got to let go of the comfortable. I got to let go of the comprehensible and the ordinary. And that's hard. 
And that's okay. It's okay that it's hard. It's okay that I don't understand. It's okay that there's grinding on me a little bit because I'm only fulfilled finally when I'm in the heavenly liturgy, not participating in the earthly version of it. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things in, in, a, in a very particular way that I think we can, we can kind of come face to face with and, and confront this mystery is the very uh, language that we use in the liturgy. And I mean the Latin, I mean the chant, I mean the silence. These are all things that confront our humanity and, and our earthliness and say, ah, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I might not like it. But I do realize that it's sacred. I do realize that there's something here that, uh, there's music here that I don't listen to in my car. Because I'm being, I'm being drawn into something different. And, and this continues to be the, the invitation of the church. You know, we've all heard about Vatican II and, you know, what Vatican II said and did. And we all know that Vatican II totally got rid of Latin and there's not supposed to be Latin in the Mass anymore. And that any priest who does Latin is totally turning the clock back and doing something that wasn't supposed to be done anymore. And so I just want to read something from... Uh, from a document that was sent out by Pope Paul VI 10 years after the council concluded. And it was a letter to all the bishops on the minimum repertoire of plain chant, the Gregorian chant that we use. So this is issued by the Office of Worship. Our congregation has prepared a booklet entitled Jubilate Deo, which contains a minimum selection of sacred chants. This was done in response to a desire which the Holy Father had frequently expressed that all the faithful should know at least some Latin Gregorian chants, such as, for example, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. The Jubilate Deo mass parts are the mass parts that we sing here at St. Max. They weren't something that I dug through and recovered from centuries ago. They were something commissioned by Paul VI after the council so that we could all participate in the song of the angels. He goes on. It gives me great pleasure to send you a copy of it as a personal gift from His Holiness Pope Paul VI. May I take this opportunity of recommending to your pastoral solicitude this new initiative whose purpose is to facilitate the observance of the recommendation of the Second Vatican Council, which says steps must be taken to ensure that the faithful are, to, are able to say or chant together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. He goes on to explain just the, a little bit of the history and the beauty of Gregorian chant and how it's particularly uh, native and unique to our uh, Roman rite, our Latin rite of Catholicism in which we seek to worship God. And so when we do this here, it's, it's, it's being obedient to what the church has been asking us for many, many uh, decades and centuries and confronting the mystery. And so I just want to, I just, I don't want it to be a, a hindrance to us, but it, it should be a, a veil. It, it obscures something. I don't, I don't get it. That's good. That's good. I want to, I want to realize that I don't get it. I want to know that there's something, there's something more. There's a mystery worth penetrating. 
It's not in an ordinary language that I speak every day. It's not a song that I, that I, that I, uh, I, I sing every day. But it's something mysterious. It's something that doesn't move my passions and keep me, keep me fixed to this earth, but it's something that just gently brings my heart and soul upwards to transcend this earth and bring me into heaven. So as we, as we continue our Advent journey with St. John the Baptist, let's, let's hear his, his call. Let's, let's help others prepare the way. Let's, let's ask the Lord to root out in ourselves those, those inklings, whatever they are, that ground us to the earth. And let's, on those banks of the Jordan, with Joshua and all the people of old, say, as for me and my house... I will worship the Lord.